You're listening to the American Indian Indigenous Peoples Truths. Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Out of our own sorrows and joys, out of our own losses and gains, out of our own knowledge of ease and dis-ease, out of our own store of wealth and poverty, out of our own efforts to walk through the darkness of disappointment and grief, we, here in this place, join hands and heart, knowing that life is not always easy, knowing the rewards are not always tangible, knowing that this earth walk takes courage and support, dignity and faith, in unity, leaning on each other. We reach out to those in need and wrap them with gentle strands of love light, in a healing embrace, in a sacred healing embrace, and whisper words of encouragement. My guest, Isabel Honorate. She's a native Dominican. She was born and raised in Santiago de los Caballeros, migrated to the United States where she earned a BA degree in comparative literature from Brown University and a master's in Iberian Golden Age and 19th to 20th century Latin American literature. She completed her PhD work in Latin American literature, specializing in critical theory Deconstruction, Post-Colonial, and Post-Colonial Theory from Columbia University. Isabel is an experienced teacher and researcher. She taught decolonization courses for five years in the sociology department at the City College of New York. She was a consultant in the Smithsonian field, worked in Aqua Dulce, an indigenous Dominican folk religion, and presented a paper on Taino Cultural and Genetic Survival During the 16th Century of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. She has also participated in the Dominican Studies Conference and has conducted field research in the Amazon on Indigenous Knowledge and Traditional Herbal Medicine. Isabel is currently teaching in Anthropology Department at Lehman College in the Bronx. Welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you for having me. Isabel, I wanted to start this conversation with talking to you about why you chose education as a 
an occupation or a, a goal in life. Why was that? Why did you do that? Well, I think that ever since I was a small child, I liked reading and writing more than anything else. Um, and then at some point um, towards high school, I realized that what I really liked was just knowledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I got to college, I originally thought I could do engineering, like my mother was, wanted me to. Yeah. Um, but then I realized that it was too limiting a field for me, and for the way that I wanted to learn to think and and uh, and work. Um, and so I ended up taking some literature courses, and the rest is sort of history. Um, I never went back. And then at some point while I was in college, I realized I needed to, you know, have a career. Right. Um, and I also felt I wasn't done uh, with my reading and my research. And so a PhD seemed like the natural follow up to that. And uh, and then once I was uh, once I entered graduate school, then it was with the goal to be a professor at some point, because that would give me the opportunity to be able to do what I love to do, which is talk about ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, share knowledge, share information, and at the same time, I, I combine several passions. It, also, you know, my fervent desire that that this world can be a better world, and I think that changing people's minds, helping people open their minds, helping people access information that they wouldn't have otherwise be able to even know it exists—that became that—that's a passion, and so it all seemed to fit in perfectly well once I was uh, doing the PhD program and I realized that I, I enjoyed teaching in fact a lot, almost a lot more than I enjoyed research and so that's what I did uh, I tried okay. to change the world uh, I guess one mind at a time <laughs> okay so have has it been fulfilling for you uh, with all of the different students yes I mean I I love teaching I love the classroom in fact now that we're in this you know in the middle of this crisis I've realized how much I like the classroom because we're not we're teaching online now and not not in an actual physical classroom since the university is closed. And so I love the community uh, that one gets to form in a classroom. It's like a journey that we take together. So at the beginning, even if we don't know each other, by the end of that journey, six months later, five months later, we have a community. Uh, there's a, a great exchange of ideas that can happen in a college classroom. And so all of that, for me, that's very fulfilling, yes. Uh, I I may always get nervous before lectures. I think some people <laughs> do their entire lives because it's like a performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but afterwards, I always walk out of the classroom energized and and uh, and excited that I had the privilege to do that to you know to be able to talk to young people and help them understand uh, you know fields of knowledge that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise. All right. Now you know you have had. Um probably some exceptional students that you stood before. Uh, can you think of any one or two in particular? Exceptional students? Yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> I call them my favorites. <laughs> uh, you know, like, just like parents, teachers, you know, we pretend we don't have favorites, but of course we do, we're human. And so, of course, I mean, I've had uh, at least, I can think of two or three students that have really stayed with me over the years. Uh, they've, uh, at least, you know, two of them went on to grad school. Mm. Um, one of them became a midwife, uh, after, uh, a culture and health class that she took with me in city college. I, I would normally, in my classes, because they're decolonizing classes, I normally sort of you know, build a critique of Western culture and then I give them the indigenous perspective 
on right. that same field of knowledge from an indigenous perspective. And so once once she went through that class, she decided to be a midwife. So her entire life changed because of that class. And she was such an enthusiastic and an intelligent student and engaged that, that it was a pleasure for me. In fact, that semester was one of my best semesters. And I call a, a semester a good semester or a best semester when I have a good group of students that are very receptive, open, and can take me further than I imagined the class how I designed the class originally. And so that's really exciting for me. So yes, I have at least, you know, two or three students that I, I am still in touch with them, mm-hmm. uh, friends with many of my students over the years. Do you ever take your students on field trips? Yes, I do, in fact. Uh, I, in fact, this year, with what's happened this semester, I had to cancel the field trip that we had planned uh, because it was planned uh, for, I think it was March uh, 8th, Mm-hmm. Uh, Women's International Day, and uh, we were going to go to the indigenous um, group uh, that went to speak at the at the action uh, that happened in uh, Thompson Square Park here in New York City, and uh, we had to cancel because I couldn't take them out of the university in the middle of the beginning of the week when the university the administration was trying to decide whether or not we were going to close. Right. They were making that decision, and the governor had announced a state of emergency for the for the, for the state. Um, I, you know, I have, we had to cancel the trip this, this semester. But normally, I take okay. them either to conferences, um, like for example, I don't know if you heard that the Smithsonian uh, Institute uh, here in New York at the Museum of the American Indian mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. an exhibit on Taino cultural survival and uh, genetic and cultural survival. And uh, so I brought them to that. That's an example of a field trip that we took uh, in one of my classes. Other years, depending on what I'm teaching, I might take them to um, you know, uh, um, some form of social action because my students are, you know, teaching for CUNY uh, in New York City means that I, my student body uh, is normally composed of first-generation children of migrant people. Okay. from Latin America, but really from all over the world. Classes are pretty mixed. Uh, so, you know, I have people that are straight from Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, but then I have the first-generation kids born here. But what that means is that they're all working-class people. And what happens with the working class in the United States is that, you know, until recently, until standards, people are not aware that there's such a thing as classes in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have a very difficult time understanding what it means to be working class and what it means to you know, work for a wage. That also means that they're extremely busy because they're students and workers and parents sometimes. Wow. And, uh, and so they don't get to really go actively political. Because I always explain to them that passivity is a form of political involvement anyway. <laughs> yes. Um but you know, but it's so much better to to be uh, to take an active role uh, in your own political journey. And so, at times, you know, th- those will be the the outings that we take. Um, but this semester, yes, we're not going to be able to go on any. One of the losses of the semester. So you 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 taught decolonization. What's your take on that? Because all the time I see in communities of color, young people wearing these. T-shirts with the, the word "decolonize" on it. What effect has that had on your curriculum? And and the second part of that question: Have you ever taught Native American students? 
Well, yes, if you take into account that most of the population, I mean, not most, but a, a large percentage of the population of the migrants from Latin America are actually, in fact, indigenous people. Right. Whether they may be aware of, it, of their indigeneity or not. And so I, I do always say that, of course, yes, I, I teach uh, Native students. They're just not all of them at the same stages of, I guess, of the, dis- of, of the self-discovery of, of, of identity. Because identity, you know, indigenous identity is very conflicted in Latin America. Yes. Not necessarily something people want to identify with. Um, there are no advantages to, you know, self-identifying as native in Latin America. And, uh, and many of the nation states of Latin America, in fact, completely deny that, the, that there are any indigenous among their populations, like yeah. the Dominican Republic, is important, mm-hmm. um, or the Caribbean at large, um, with the minor exception now of Cuba that recognizes, um, you know, a, a, a Taino community that, that is, has been documented historically. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, there's proof, right, of their identity, and they have been recognized by the Cuban government. Um, but other than that exception, and maybe, you know, the Calinago in Dominica, in the Caribbean, um, no nation state recognizes that it has indigenous peoples, but we, we are a, a mix of all three cultures, and therefore, you will have people, uh, you know, white Caribbeans, black Caribbeans, and indigenous Caribbeans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a mix of all three. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I do teach uh, Native students, uh, but again, you know, at different levels of decolonization uh, or of in the colonization process. And so for me, originally, um, in grad school, I approached, uh, you know, post-colonial theory, which is where I get, you know, what now we call decolonization, um, because I myself had always been ambivalent with, uh, you know, um, what we call the hegemonic official Dominican history and Caribbean history at large. Mm-hmm. So I always felt there was something missing, something that didn't totally represent me. Um, I didn't know what it was. Uh, I myself, I don't know, uh, you know, we haven't talked about that, but I myself went through a, a, my, my own process of decolonization mm-hmm. while in grad school. Um, because that's sort of where I, I, I all, everything collided or, and, and came together. And, uh, and, and, and I had a, a sort of existential crisis where I felt really lost. And, uh, and then I, I, have, I happened upon uh, this book written by Jose Barreiro. I don't know if you know Jose Barreiro. I'm imagining you do. He works at the Smithsonian. He um, is a former professor um, of uh, Native American history here at Cornell University. And he had written a historical uh, novel um, on the first 50 to 100 sort of years of the arrival of the uh, Spaniards uh, to my island. And I happened to, you know, uh, get that book while I was in grad school, read it, and uh, and I had um, I had what I call, you know, an awakening of my ancestral memory, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, it makes um, a lot of sense. It does. Okay, um, and uh, and that's when I realized. I mean, um, I always tell this story, which is the night you know when I first got the book. I had it for a while. I hadn't read it. One night, I just picked it up and started reading because I wanted to avoid my own work. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what we do, you know, when we're in grad school, and uh, we read other things. And um, and then I couldn't put the book down. And then it was a very emotional, uh, you know, journey that night of reading the book. And then I remember, you know, once I finished the book, I went to the bathroom to watch my face because I had been crying almost throughout the entire book. 
and uh, and when I looked at myself in the mirror, I I saw, or I, I like to say that I, for the first time, recognized the Indian in me that I had never seen before, because I had been taught that we simply didn't exist, and that couldn't that was a, a historical impossibility to have any Indian uh, heritage and ancestry or culture. So it was a that at that moment it was a rude awakening to you, right? I would say rude. In fact, I found it very cathartic because, uh-huh. as I said, I felt really, um, you know, out of place in my own culture. Uh, for you know, it wasn't like being a migrant and and, and being in the United States wasn't the first time that I felt out of place. Mm. I had always felt out of place, and I couldn't, you know, uh, identify what that was about, that feeling. And in fact, now, you know, in retrospect, I, I think that my thirst for knowledge had to do with that, with finding explanations for questions that I didn't even know I had. And uh, and that novel opened up um, the, the, the possibility in my mind, because what happens with academic training and, and you know, uh, I call that indoctrination, but it, that's a strong word, but it, it does function like that. You know, when you visit kids to school from first grade to 12th grade and we tell them the same story for those 12 years, by the time they come out, they think that that's the only possible perspective, <laughs> let's mm-hmm. call it. And, and in fact, the only, the only actual, you know, truth, quote unquote. But really, history is a matter of perspective and it's a matter of who tells the story. And so that's not something you learn until you're in college. But even when you learn that, it just seems, uh, you know, something, it's another fact that you add to your list of facts, but it's not something that sinks in until, for example, I had that experience uh, first with, for example, um, you know, uh, blackness and, and, and African identity in, in the Caribbean. Right. Blacks in the Caribbean have gone through this too, you know, the denial of blackness, the vilification of Africa, the erasure of anything, uh, you know, the, the attempt at erasure of traditions, or, but certainly marginalizations of those traditions. And, uh, and so I had seen it in action there, but again, it was sort of, uh, you know, an intellectual exercise to a certain extent. I didn't completely felt identified. Uh, because I didn't grow up in an African, Afro-Dominican context in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I read Barreiro's novel, that's sort of where it all fell into place. I, I felt it in carne propia, as we say in Spanish, which means, you know, in your own flesh. Right. Um, right. And, and in my spirit. And, in my, and then my mind was able to grasp something that I had never been able to understand, which is what it really means that, you know, historical facts can be manipulated. Uh, into into constructing an entirely alternative, different reality that has actually not that much to do with the facts as they have been written uh, down, recorded um, uh, on the one hand, but also about the fact that you know most of what's written about the peoples of the Caribbean is written by the people who came from abroad and who were in fact their enemies. And and their and and the, and their oppressors. You know, they wanted to learn about the people because they wanted to oppress them better. So that all really becomes more palpable and intelligible. One, for me at least, once I had the the missing side to the Caribbean story, which was the indigenous side, and that's what I mean by I always felt there was something missing both within my own personal story and history, but also at large with the entire region 
and my island in particular. Mm-hmm. I thought there was always something missing, something that just didn't make sense. And and in the ways that they narrate uh, right now, for example, in academia, Dominican identity and Dominican history, um, you know, there is an entire critique built uh, on um, Eurocentricity and how it represents Africa and blackness in the Caribbean. But there is no critique yet on how Eurocentricity also silences and attempts at completely erasing indigeneity in the Caribbean. That still just doesn't exist in the field. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, it, it does, but it's a very minor area. Right. Let's talk about uh, the indigenous Dominican folk religion. I believe it's pronounced aqua dulce. Oh, the, the folk religion, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, Jorge Esteves, um, who used to work at the Smithsonian. He was a researcher at the Smithsonian. He's retired now, just like Jose Barreiro. And Jorge Esteves uh, is this incredible ethnographer and researcher. He worked for the Smithsonian for many years uh, within the Taino uh, Caribbean Project Division. And, uh, and while he was doing, you know, work for the Smithsonian in the Dominican Republic about other things, uh, recovering artifacts, etc., he had this hunch that there were, first I should say that most anthropologists would say that in the Dominican Republic, all the folk religions that we practice are of African origin or uh, are syncretism between uh, West African religion like Yoruba and Christianity. Is that true? But what Jorge, uh, well, that's what I'm, uh, not entirely. It's what we have come to understand through Jorge's work. And also, you know, folklorists like Irka Mateo, I don't know if you know about Irka Mateo, she's a great uh, mm-hmm. folklorist from the Dominican Republic musician, artist. And she's also done a lot of uh, field work. In conversation with with Irka Mateo, Jorge Esteves has his idea, he goes, because of things that he's seen in, in the practices in the countryside of the Dominican Republic. And so he goes back uh, a couple of trips more, uh, gathers more data, and convinces the Smithsonian that this is something um, of you know worthy of further study. Study. So we headed. Uh, I think it was in 2016, summer 2016. Jose Barreiro, Jorge Estevez, and myself to the Dominican Republic to to interview to do a whole pilgrimage interviewing um, curanderos and traditional curanderos and traditional practitioners of a specific religion uh, that is called the uh, 21 divisions, mm-hmm. divisions. 21 divisions, uh, if, if you look it up on Google or any scholarly book, they will tell you that it's mostly Afro, um, Afro-Dominican, that it's syncretism, etc. And there's no mention whatsoever of indigenous aspects. But when we go to the field, when we see the practitioners, when we look at their altars, and when, uh, you know, when I read uh, Jorge's work, I, what Jorge proposes, and he's completely right, because I saw it myself, I confirmed it myself, is that within that uh, religion, the 21 division, they divide their pantheon uh, of gods and spirits um, and ancestral uh, spirits in three uh, dimensions, let's say. So they have the European, Christian, the African, and then they have the, the Indian, they call it the Indian in the Dominican Republic. And they're very different, uh, very markedly different, uh, the, how the altars are built, where the altars are built. For, and so, for example, with the Indian uh, you know, uh, dimension within that religion, 
they use water and stone and tobacco and uh, and cassava and they have uh, you know and they pray to our ancestral chiefs like Anacaona and Kaunabo mm-hmm. who are you know very well known ancestral chief figures because they fought against you know they, they were the ones to confront the Spaniards and right. uh, and they died um, because of it mm-hmm. and uh, and so this is all. You know, it had just—it's all—it's just simply being overlooked and not studied enough, because most historians, right? Since it's a, it's for most academics in any field, the disappearance of the indigenous in the Caribbean is a historical fact, and any you know remnant of indigeneity is not something that any researcher is looking for, except this project in the Smithsonian and the few academics that that work within this very you know. Mm-hmm. feel of um, of Caribbean indigeneity. So, in your in your works, uh, you've done a lot in the area of decolonization, um, and decolonization is a is a very acute uh, subject matter to teach. And uh, let's just well, spend, let's just spend a yeah. couple of minutes on that because I have another question that I want to talk to. You. Okay. okay, but let me just um, uh, give you a conclusion to what I was saying before, which is that uh, what we, you know, what Jorge and and Jose and I were able to confirm after the 2016 trip is that Jorge was completely right. What we are, what what exists within the 21 divisions, that Indian dimension, is actually a remnant of the historical Taino religion. So as described by Fray Ramon Pané, um, which is, you know, one of the earliest and, and best texts we have about mm-hmm. how our ancestors lived prior to 1492. So that's what I would say is that uh, uh, the name in Spanish that the practitioners give uh, that, you know, sort of subdivision within the 21 divisions. Okay. And uh, and so then to address your your question about uh, decolonization, I mean essentially it's actually quite simple. What it means is that I in my courses will always build first, you know, the first part of the semester, a critique about what is you know uh, I guess the major flaws in Western thought that have led to um, you know the the supremacist ideologies like, you know, sexism, racism, and classism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and those systems of oppression that accompany them. And uh, and so then once we understand, you know, what is, you know, I guess the flaws, uh, and we feel a critique of Western culture, then I give them the indigenous perspective. And so I bring in indigenous knowledges. Uh, for example, in culture and health, I could tell them about, you know, how health and healing um, are are something that are completely different and approach in a very different and more holistic way from an indigenous perspective than a Western perspective. Um, and uh, in something, for example, like this class that I'm teaching this semester, one of the classes I'm teaching, I'm teaching an introduction to cultural anthropology. Mm. So once we examine certain theories that allow us to critique, you know, the you know, let's say the weaknesses or flaws within Western culture, um, then uh, I give them examples of how indigenous cultures have addressed the same problems. So when it comes to, for example, patriarchy, right? Uh, indigenous mm-hmm. cultures have all, have uh, historically been matriarchies and are still matriarchies in, in most instances. 
So we talk about societal organizations, how, for example, um, you know, uh, how Marx got his inspiration for right. communism from studying, you know, what he called primitive, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but with in fact, you know, um, indigenous, you know, communal way of life. Things like that, you see. So I give them both sides, and that's what we call the colonization, right? We we, we take away the non-factual or or uh, askew information that they have on on the indigenous peoples, and uh, and we also put into question ideas that they take for granted, like that civilization means yeah. a certain type of technology. And that technology is, is only, you know, electronic, that there are no other types of technologies. You know, so we question all those uh, certainties that they have. Um, and then we give them um, the perspective from of, of the indigenous, uh, you know, traditional knowledge. Okay. Is, you know, in stark contrast to Western mm-hmm. traditions. Okay. Now I want to... So, and, and that's what we mean by the colonization, right? We help the students understand how in their learning process, that is a, a process of colonization itself, mm-hmm. a colonization of the mind, right? Okay. What we're going to do, we're going to come back in about a minute or two. This is WPFW 89.3 FM, the American Indian Indigenous People's Truths, Justice for All, the most dangerous show on radio. WPFW FM. We'll be right back. My guest, Isabel Honorate. Now I want to get into more of uh, what's going on today. Our people have been exposed to biological warfare 
in the past when they brought smallpox and made gifts of blankets with smallpox in it. And then we had the Spanish flu, we had the SARS, the HIV, but today we're facing an even bigger threat to the health and well-being of, of people. And that's the coronavirus. What is your take on this coronavirus? And, and where do we go with this? I see. Well, that is a very loaded question. Uh, <laughs> it's complex. But mm-hmm. let's see. I mean, there are many dimensions to this as well. Um, and there's a lot to unpack. For example, I guess for me, I would want to begin by talking about political aspects mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this current crisis. And I think that the crisis is a symptom of the actual problem that we have on this planet, which are, one, the human impact on uh, nature mm-hmm. um, and the devastation of the environment, which, you know, always scientifically is a scientifically proven fact that it retaliates back on us. It reflects back on us, right? What we do to the web of life, we do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's something that Western scientists agree uh, you know, with that statement completely. And uh, so that's the first part, I would say, of my answer, which is that this is a symptom of a larger crisis, which is how we live on this planet. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and then there is the fact that you know, the, we have lived on this planet in a very specific way for the last 527 years. Because with European imperial expansion, what happens is that a certain type of way of life of planet Earth is the one that gets propagated, right, for the last 527 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and one way of thinking uh, gets imposed when, those, you know, when, when uh, Europe invades and colonizes and, uh, and imposes their, you know, their political models, their social organization models, and their ways of knowledge. Uh, and I'm referring specifically at its current form, which is, you know, the economic system, the world economic system, capitalism. And so this is a symptom of, of, of the failure of capitalism mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, for, if it hadn't been, for example, for the last, you know, let's say three decades at least of neoliberal, you know, capitalist practices, hospitals in the United States will be better staffed and better uh, equipped to deal mm-hmm. with the crisis. Um, so, you know, so that, those, those are the two sides, I, I would say, first, which is that this is a symptom of, 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 you know, the failure of capitalism. And that if we stand to learn anything from this crisis is the fact that it gives us the opportunity to realize that we need to change our economic system. Because changing the economic system will alter the impact that we have on planet Earth, but it will also impact how we live ourselves as humans uh, on, on, you know, and, and the quality of our lives, especially for the working class and the middle class that almost completely disappeared in the United States, the middle class, I mean, and the working class is, you know, in, in a more dire condition than ever. So I think that uh, this is a moment, you know, in spite of the fact that we are, uh, you know, for our own benefit, uh, we have to isolate and we have to social distance uh, from each other, I think that um, we still need to form a collective response to this crisis. And what I think many of us are hoping for, and I'm, and I'm putting myself in, in the group of philosophers and scholars who have been discussing, uh, you know, the topic of um, an activist uh, of the of the current crisis and epidemic, 
Um, and I think I side with everyone who is hoping that this is the moment where humanity takes a good look at, um, you know, at itself and, uh, and realizes that we do need to alter the way that we relate to animals, to the, to the environment, to the trees, to, to all the other, you know, children of Mother Earth, because we're not the only ones. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully organize better, have more of uh, organized social response uh, that could allow us to, you know, present a united front and not let governments, you know, run amok with the powers that they have currently and, uh, you know, enact policies that will be detrimental to our freedom, to our constitutional rights and our, you know, mm-hmm. rights and, uh, in the long term. Like, and, and I'm, talking about specific things like for example i don't know if you've heard but recently um the secretary of interiors i think just um communicated to the to the um mashpi wampanoa people that they uh, are uh, yeah, yeah. expected to vacate their land and that's outrageous i mean the mashpi wampanoa have been on that land for the last twelve thousand years true um you know, the federal government has no right over that land, really, in spite of how things are organized and seen from the perspective of the federal government. And so, but but it happens right now, right in the middle of a crisis, so that the Wampanoa people right now are not just having to face the crisis of the, and the threat of the virus, but they also now have to contend with the federal government trying to evict them. When, for example, in a place like New York City, you know, we have a moratorium on evictions for the next three months. So there is a, a very important political dimension to this current crisis that I think, you know, while people are scared and distracted, it will be, they can be easily manipulated into relinquishing more of their civil rights. And, uh, and, and, and we should be vigilant and mindful about that and not uh, let things like that happen. So... You know, even if we're in our houses, we can sign petitions, we can stand with the Wampanoa, we can Absolutely. distribute information. Absolutely. Now, if we you... We can create networks of support. What kind of a macroeconomic system do you see as being practical? And, and what can we do to not just make things better for uh, our people in general, but focusing on people that are being taken total advantage of on a global level, and especially the, the Wampanoag, the Mashpee Wampanoags at this point in their history? Well, I mean, I think that certainly right now in the current, um, you know, with our current circumstances, um, it seems like, for example, um, supporting someone like Sanders is a good idea, and maybe um, well, Sanders was your only hope. Uh, it seems like that would be a good option, uh, it, you know, to support progressive uh, candidates um, that can really actually alter the system because the system needs to be altered. The system doesn't really it it doesn't really work for everyone. It only works for you know the elite, the one percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and we we may be the historically oppressed, and we may be the most marginalized and the most vulnerable. But there are many others in, in, that have been affected by this system. I mean, even the white middle class is affected by the system. You know, there are people in ICE detention centers illegally uh, in prison. Their children 
have, who have been separated from their parents. I mean, it, the, the number of victims of capitalism uh, are, it's really quite staggering. In fact, if you want, I can give you um, statistics that pulled out this um, list that I give my students on, uh, on the statistics. And, and for example, the annual human cost of capitalism uh, is about 8 million people die a year from lack of clean water. Okay. 7.6 million, 7. million people die of hunger, right? 3 million right. people die of terrible diseases. To finally completely answer your question, that, you know, I think in the short term, we, are, we support progressive candidates. In the long term, um, we organize communally, locally, um, because I think that we need to take matters into our own hands to a certain extent for our own food and, and, and be of you know, more social support right. to each other mm-hmm. at the local level. Um, and then gradually work towards, right, getting representatives, local representatives, and, and gradually altering the system. Okay, how about this? How about this? We see that the European economic model has not worked. And we also yeah. know that after this crisis subsides, that with all of the devastation that, Nothing will be the same again. How do you feel about cooperatives? How do I feel about a cooperative type it, of a situation to to change oh, the well, the, yes. the, I mean, the paradigm, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is the type of you know move that we need. We need to move in the direction of protecting the commons, of actually recognizing that there's something as a concept like the commons that there are things like water and land that do not belong and should not belong exclusively to a corporation, for example, or a government, but to the people. And there's certain things that should be human rights, like, you know, the right to shelter, to food, to clean water, mm-hmm. healthy food. Um, health care, yeah. Health care, exactly. With this current crisis, has made it very obvious of why, how is it possible that, you know, a First Nation uh, like the United States, a First World Nation like the United States, isn't capable of, of uh, confronting a crisis like this. This should not be overtaking a place like New York, right? We're lacking beds, um, respirators, and staff uh, that are not appropriately equipped to deal with the pandemic. Why is that? Because in the last two administrations, at least, if not three or four, what the government of the state and the city has, have been doing is defunding hospitals and reducing the number of beds. And so their neoliberal policies have led to this, you know, the, to the current crisis that we're having when it comes to the medical field and not being able to confront the crisis. And then, and you, so, and, yes. And then you also have these uh, stupid decisions being made by uh, this president on disbanding the uh, emergency management on health care. I, um, I, I see no, I see no sense in that. And, and I'm also seeing well, that a lot of decisions that he's making are all slapping him in the face because they're not based on any facts or reality. It's only his own personal ego. This has not helped the situation, and it's hurt us more than anything else. Yes, well, you see, after the 2016 election, Professor Chomsky called the United States the most dangerous organization in the world and the most detrimental to human life. And he has a point because the worst thing that could have happened to a certain extent is was what happened in the 2016 election. Because the people in power right now are not interested in human lives. They don't consider life as sacred. 
Mm-hmm. Um, their God is the economy, and they don't understand that the economy is actually people. <laughs> and and their <laughs> God the and, and the working class is the economy. Yeah, they and, don't realize that. They think the economy is the, the corporation and the accumulation of wealth and the market, and that if they take care of the corporation, the market, and uh, and the accumulation of wealth, all will be well again. You mentioned They're all will be well only for a very reduced group of people. Okay, you mentioned their God. And their God is all is the Almighty Dollar, nothing else. There's yeah. no, as you said, there's no respect for human life. Uh, there's no respect for taking care of our grandmother, the Earth, that everything we have comes from, and and it's you know, and it's on and on and on and on. And I'm looking at this idiot as being no more than a symptom of the real problem. I think that with this outbreak, he's out of his league. I don't think that they expected something like that to happen during his administration, and I don't think that they're equipped to handle it. Clearly, I don't think that they were equipped to be in charge in the first place. Of, of anything. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, what many, let's say, outside of academia, you know, in, in my indigenous circles, uh, what many people have been saying is that, you know, this is sort of like uh, how the healing process, right? The United States for a long time has been very diluted on its own history and its own position in the world and impact people within its borders and outside of its borders. And so uh, many among the indigenous people that I know here in New York City think that this is a way of opening a wound that was festering but needed to be opened before it can actually heal. So if, if the 2016 election had not happened, as much as it depressed many of us, maybe we would never have seen you know, this level of racism, this level of misogyny, this level of of classism, this yeah. level of, of discrimination and insanity that is coming out of the White House. I okay. think that that is, you know, maybe it will work historically that way in that, you know, maybe the majority of the people who I think are clear thinking people will realize right, that the, the deeper problems that the society has had for the for, since uh, foundation. Okay. And okay. maybe it's time for another American revolution. Well, um, I think the stage has already been set, you know, and I'm looking at what happened with uh, Great Britain and the Suez Canal. They will never be the same again. And uh, all of that power and glory that they thought they had, that was what actually was their Achilles heel. Now, is it possible to, to make such a major paradigm shift or is it just wishful thinking? It's absolutely possible. I mean, history teaches us that. Imagine the French Revolution, right? Before the French Revolution, it was unimaginable for people to think that they could kill their kings. But they did. (laughs) And uh, think about the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, before the Haitian Revolution, it was unthinkable for Europeans that uh, people of African descent were uh, humans and let alone would ever be free and let alone would ever be able to defeat the Napoleonic army. Mm-hmm. which they did. So it's absolutely possible. Humanity has done it time and time again. You know, we went from being nomadic to being, uh, you know, settled agricultural people. We transitioned from patriarchy to matriarchy, and now we seem to be heading back uh, into, you know, something that is at least matriarchy. The idea of matriarchy is coming back. It took 10,000 years, but it's coming back. <laughs> yeah. um, 
<laughs> yeah, some in thousand years. It's different parts of the world because, of course, in the Americas, it's only, it's only been 527 years since it's disappeared, uh, the ones that couldn't survive. But so humanity has done this in many, many times. But that's also part of sort of the human story. We get so used to one way of thinking or one idea, and that idea takes hold, and it takes a long, long time for people to let go of that idea. But we have in the past, right? We went from monarchies to, you know, representative government. We went from, you know, racialized slavery to at least wage slavery, <laughs> mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, right? So we have made transitions. We have made paradigm shifts before. It's not impossible. And we've done it. And now our collective survival is at stake because what I always mention in, in my classes is that it's actually, you know, people have it wrong in the, in the sort of uh, popular narrative in the media. Mm-hmm. It's not the planet that's dying. It's us. <laughs> we are the ones who will disappear if we don't change our ways. It's human life that won't be possible, right? The planet will regenerate. Mother Earth is, you know, uh, mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. She's done it before. So it's humanity that has to learn to be flexible, and it's humanity that has to learn to grow. And I think this is time, and, and our prophecies, right, talk about this. And so I think that this is the time that has, has been foreseen by our ancestors, our elders, and of, of many different nations throughout, you know, um, Avia Yala. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's coming to pass. And I think, yes, this is the moment for a shift. Why not? Uh, I think we've done it before. We can do it again. So, I, it's, no, it's not wishful thinking. I think, uh, like Anna Koana, Koana uh, that this world is ready for the rightful thinking of women or woman leadership. What's your thought on that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, masculinity, toxic masculinity has been uh, running amok in the planet for 10,000 years now. In the case of that one particular mm-hmm. you know, bad idea of humanity. Um, and, uh, and it's time. It's been time for a very long time now. Um, you know, think about the fact that women, for example, only got the vote in the 20th century. So yeah. we're only now celebrating 100 years since women were able to vote. Um, we weren't allowed to be in universities in most places until the 1960s and 70s. The first wave of you know feminist uh, female professors didn't come until the 80s. We're at the beginning of that process, but I think yes, that's that's the direction to move. Right? We need right. to move in the direction where we're more communal, uh, okay. where we understand the sacredness of all life, and we understand you know the the balance between the feminine and the masculine, and how important it is to respect the feminine. Um, and to bring okay. it back to its place of centrality within the community. Okay. I've always liked that quote. I forget who said it. I don't know if you remember. Um, remember the the heart, the heart of a no, a nation is not defeated until the heart of its women are on the ground. Yeah, that was no a, matter how strong that was, that warriors was, or its weapons. That was the Lakotas. Okay. I want I want to thank you so much. I can't tell you how honored I feel to have had this conversation with you, and. I want to ask you this one thing, and it only requires a yes or a no. Would you come okay. back again uh, in, the, in the future to uh, have another conversation? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, please let me just say I'm honored. Really. I mean, I'm, I'm very humbled because I, you know, to me, you're uh, an amazing person. You've interviewed some of my great heroes, like John Trudell. We talked about that the other day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
So I'm very honored and humbled at the same time. Uh, so thank you for thinking of me and thank you for having me on your program. You're and very, yes, of course, I would I would consider coming back. You <laughs> are very, my, you my are very welcome. Introvertness. Yeah, you are very welcome. And just to mention it, uh, John Trudell was a very, very close friend of mine. And uh, I am so honored to have had you on with me today, Isabel. Thank you so much. And we'll be talking again soon, right? Carry my blessings and my love with you, okay? Thank you, you too. Colonialism is defined as control by one power over an independent area of people. In practice, colonialism, when one country violently invades and takes control of another, claims the land as its own and sends people, settlers, to live on that land. Economic and social reasons, a better life, most colonists had faced difficult lives in Britain, Ireland, Scotland, Germany. They came to the Americas to escape poverty, warfare, political turmoil, famine, and disease. They believed colonial life offered new opportunities. But colonialism is the theory that we are superior to everyone else, so that means that we have the right to take over their land and run it for our own benefit. Colonialism is the theory that leads to colonization. And colonization started way before they came here. In 1452, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church out of the Vatican issued a Catholic edict or order that said to European people that if you go anywhere in the world and you meet people that don't look like you, act like you, think like you, and refuse to convert to Roman Catholicism. You have the divine right to subdue them or enslave them or kill them. And anything that you see that they have that you want, you have a right to take that, provided you give 10% back to the Roman Catholic Church. And today we are paying for that here in the Americas. COVID-19 is just one answer for what they did to our people here in the Americas. I'm Jay Winter Nightwolf, and this is the American Indians Troops, Justice for All. Nanada, Goa'i, Wado.